How do beauty and creativity help us know God? And how does the beauty of God's creation re-enchant the world as we know it? In today's episode, David White shares how aesthetics, playfulness, and creativity can be reclaimed in churches and in classrooms. White is an author and educator who focuses on theology, discernment, and culture. He's Professor Emeritus of Christian Education at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary and the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Youth and Theology. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. You have what I might say is one of the most intense titles of a book that I've read in a while. Um, The book is called Tending the Fire That Burns at the Center of the World. And I'm curious if you would get us started by just sharing why it was so significant for you to write this book right now. The title comes from a quote uh, from um, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who was a uh, theologian in the mid 20th century. His fear was that theologians had turned theology into a desiccated butterfly collection, um, you know, uh, and uh, so, so theology was just turning the leaves of a collection and reviewing dead ideas. And he, and he, and he, he insisted that theology is the fire and light that burns at the center of the world. And so he, his uh, project was to try to reclaim that sense that theology is alive and that it burns and that it, that it has something, there's some imminent sort of com, something compelling and imminent uh, about theology. So that's, that's what's at stake for him. And that's sort of what's at uh, the heart of this book project. And so I, what I'm doing in this book is trying to explore what it would mean to think through, um, you know, beauty as the distinctive way of knowing uh, you know, that is uh, decisive in the Christian tradition. I think that uh, the choice of beauty as a way into that question is is in a lot of ways unique, um, given how kind of modern and intellectualized and in some ways flattened um, even our ideas about beauty have become. So can you walk us into that by telling us about something beautiful that you've experienced? So, so um, as a child, uh, you know, I, I didn't have, living where I lived, we didn't have, um, you know, professional baseball was not part of the world that I lived in, uh, but, I, but I did listen to baseball games every Saturday morning uh, while I was doing my the chores around the house, and my family would always have a baseball game. It was usually the, the Yankees um, playing on our little Lucite, uh, you know, <laughs> tube, mm-hmm. and so I would listen to uh, baseball games, and and I was always intrigued by, um, you know, the voices of the announcers and the descriptions that they would recount. But I, it wasn't until I was like eight years old where my uncle uh, got tickets for me to go to a game in Baltimore, the Baltimore Orioles, mm-hmm. and I got and I got to see, uh, sit behind home plate and see my first baseball game. Uh, oh, you even had good seats had good seats and uh, just the whole experience, you know, the growling organ in the background, the floodlights and the hot dogs and the, you know, uh, all of the crowd noises and the, the orange, you know, dirt rising and the rosin bag and the, you know, then when the players run on the field with their uniforms, 
Um, I'm just immediately sort of captured by the ballet of it all. And then when the game starts, I, I recognize uh, sort of this organic relationship that's all between all of the players. And so just in that encounter, I, 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 um, I found it so compelling that I, when I went back home, I um, begged my father uh, to get me a, a baseball mitt and, and uh, you know, play baseball for the next 12 years of my life. Um, yeah. So, and my point is that it, it would not have been the same experience had my father or my uncle simply given me a rule book of baseball or mm. given me a history of baseball. There yeah. was something compelling about seeing uh, the ballet uh, seeing, you know, the relationships and how uh, in this event, the sum, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and, and everyone is participating some, in something larger than themselves. And um, it's just, uh, it's a compelling experience. Yeah, it also strikes me, David, as you talk about that kind of the uh, materiality is a word that you use a lot, but also just the physicality of entering into that. And it's, it's not just body, but it's also emotion um, that, that happens when you enter into a sport like baseball. Well, there comes a point in baseball and in jazz, playing jazz guitar, where you sort of lose your sense of self. You, you, you're, you're sort of, um, you sort of become part of the, the music. You become part of the game. And so uh, there's something going on. There's these peak experiences of, of my life experience where we become part of, uh, you know, the music. We become part of um, the game. Yeah, there's a phrase, and I believe you were quoting someone, um, that there's something about beauty that causes a surplus of aliveness. Yes. That phrase stuck yes. with me. Yeah, that's um, that's uh, from uh, uh, Elaine Scarry's book um, uh, on beauty and justice. And so... She, she, she and others have tried to sort of provide a kind of phenomenology of beauty. What happens when we have these experiences of beauty? And, um, and she tells the story of, uh, I believe it's actually a story that she's telling, um, uh, well, about someone else. I can't remember the person that, but she, she, she is out on her deck after having a, you know, a day that's fraught with faculty politics and, and you know, uh, you know, murmurings and grumblings and conflict. And she's out standing out on her deck and she looks up into the sky and she sees a flight of kestrel birds. Um, and then she she says that immediately um, her attention is absorbed into the beauty of the kestrels and all of the cares of her, uh, the conflicts of the day sort of drop away for a moment. And I think, I think there is a sense in which experiences of beauty, uh, you know, they, they, they're, they're charged with, with, with significance and with mystery, but they also sort of refocus our attention away from, uh, again, our egos. Hmm. You, you spend a lot of time talking about kind of the beauty that's seen in the form of Christ. Can you say more about that? You know, an, an assumption 
of the patristic theologians and medieval theologians up, you know, at least up until the modern world. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they all would have assumed that, um, so, so there, you know, especially through the patristic era, there is a kind of uh, Neoplatonism that is in the background of a lot of patristic thought in which, uh, there, you know, the three transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty, are an attempt to describe what is ultimate, um, you know, God. And mm -hmm. as Christians adopt these ideas, those are ways of characterizing God. And truth, goodness, and beauty, you know, becomes these are these three are convertible with each other. As we get closer to beauty, we also see goodness. As we get closer to goodness, we also see truth. As we get closer to truth, we see goodness and beauty. So. So these, these are convertible, but they also, um, uh, you know, for the patristics, they also are ways of characterizing all of being. It, you know, anything that has being in some sense, uh, you know, can be characterized as, as, uh, as, as having unity, goodness, truth, and beauty. And so uh, that's sort of the background for all of this. But, but by the time we get to, uh, you know, the, the patristic era, you know, the Christ event becomes a way that um, to characterize the, the beauty of God that is made visible uh, for us, um, you know, in the Christ event when Christ becomes human. And so there is a there's a sense in which um, the patristics see Christ as manifesting that 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 perfect beauty of God and the other thing that is there is to say about this is that that again the beauty of Christ is not uh, is 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 bound up with the love of Christ so there is no there, there is no sense mm. in which love can be understood without beauty and beauty without love and so these are these th these ideas are all bound up together uh, for the patristics. And so when we encounter when we encounter Christ, we're encountering at once uh, perfect beauty, truth, and goodness. Um, and and love is sort of the paradigmatic example uh, that's made that's made visible in Christ. Right, and of course Christ, um, the embodied Christ, is also. Um, incarnation. You also talk a bit about excarnation, and so can you talk about that juxta juxtaposition and how um, Christ gives us an entryway into into greater physicality and materiality through incarnation? So for Charles Taylor, he you know he, we we've already talked about a disenchantment and how Charles Taylor talks about a world that has been disenchanted. The modern world has been disenchanted. But he also says, uh, uh, contained in that idea of disenchantment, is the idea of excarnation, and this is an idea that's been embraced by, you know, William Cavanaugh and others, and and what they, what they mean by this is, um, is that we have, uh, for many for many different reasons, we have become. We set at a remove from the created beauty of the world, the beauty of the world, and so mm -hmm. because of technology, we're set at a remove from uh, you know the, the lived world and its manifold engagement, 
you know, with things in the world. Uh, so, so we, you know, for example, we, um, we have, uh, you know, HVAC. And so we, we need not even think about um, building fires or chopping wood or the land that grows the wood uh, or the mm-hmm. skills that, that, you know, it demands of us or even the social world that's created as we gather around the fire. And so when we lose, when we lose the, those worlds of experience, uh, we're set it, and, and, and so the world becomes invisible to us. It becomes in the background of our experience because HVAC does now what we used to do, uh, you know, when we built fires. And so you can, you can make the same mm-hmm. argument uh, about microwave food. You know, we, we, we now, um, with, with micro, microwavable food, we don't have to know much about growing food or even... Uh, or even where our food comes from or how it is shipped to us, um, you know, or even the commercial, you know, exigencies. All we do, we know how to do is go and pick it out of the frozen food case and stick it in a a microwave and prepare it. And what's lost there is a whole world of experience that engages with with, uh, knowing something about the land, knowing something about how to prepare food, e- even even traditions of families uh, sharing roles of washing dishes and, and, and setting the table and having a tradition of gathering around the table, uh, the social event that's involved. So there's a world of, uh, so there's a world of experience that's lost uh, increasingly by these technologies. And so that's, I don't want to over-dramatize that, but that's, Albert Borgman is the, is the person who has sort of made this point more emphatically. So we live, we live in a world that's yeah, sort of yeah. uh, at a remove from the world. And I would even say that we, um, neoliberalism, uh, uh, economic policy, has, uh, has served in mm-hmm. a sense to uh, to, to set, set us a remove from the world, set us at a remove from the world. Uh, so now, um, you know, the profit motive sets us at, you know, it, when, when everything in the world is reduced to profit, we no longer have to care about, um, you know, the raw materials uh, or the, the environmental degradation or the sweatshop labor that produces our goods. Um, when everything is reduced to uh, commercial ends and profit, uh, we're, we become excarnated, right? We become, in some sense, set, a remove, set at a remove from the world. So anyway, that's, in a nutshell, um, that's what I'm talking about when I say excarnation. This is, this is how it's, the term is used by Charles Taylor and uh, William Cavanaugh. Yeah, yeah, which is a huge juxtaposition, of course, to the idea of incarnation. But what you're describing um, does seem to resonate deeply with um, this loss of connection, both to creation and um, to other people, um, those who farm the land or um, perform other services that become invisible in a culture like ours. Um, You do um, provide some really helpful practical strategies for Christian leaders who are uh, kind of captivated by this idea of fostering uh, imagination, engaging in art and 
uh, aesthetics. And I'm curious if you could provide us with an example or two to spark our imaginations for how this might play out, um, whether in, in worship or in a classroom. You know, drawing from Jamie Smith, and I, I think Jamie Smith has done us a, a service in his books, Desiring the Kingdom and Imagining the Kingdom. I think, I think he's done a great service at showing us why, um, how worship in its tactile and aesthetic forms are so important. Uh, he says that, that, you know, by making our faith so cerebral, we have been trucking water to the wrong fire. Uh, that that, that mm-hmm. Christian faith um, lives, uh, you know, in, in when it animates the whole body, the, uh, you know, the soul, the, our, our bodies. And uh, he, he, he draws the analogy, he says, liturgy is sort of like, uh, you know, as a child riding our bicycles through a neighborhood, uh, you know, so frequently that that we just we internalize that neighborhood in our bones with every cycle stroke we internalize it with our bones so that if somebody drove up to us and asked us where where's elm street i might not be able to answer where elm street is because but i could take you there you know on my bicycle because i know that world uh in my bones so i i think i think we have to um we have to return to uh, to remember that worship is not just, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, three songs and a lecture. That that our worship has to be more sensory, and that is at its best, it includes everything: the architecture, uh, the sights and the smells. It includes uh, the gestures of passing the peace, turning to each other. It includes our bodily gestures in prayer. And, uh, and even raising our hands in celebration, and it includes, um, you know, it, it has to include. Uh, I would argue. Um, so, so John Milbank uses the term uh, "making the word strange," which I, which sort of captured mm-hmm. my imagination. And his his he's making the point that, you know, there's some text, some biblical text, some ideas that we, we have traversed so frequently, we've heard so many lectures on the Good Samaritan, right? That, that you know, once someone, you know, starts, even starts reading that passage, we skip ahead to, we know what the moral is. We know, we know that passage so, so completely. Yeah, yeah. check, so got it. We, we think we can <laughs> check out. And so we've sort of internalized that already. And we just sort of get to bypass, um, you know, any kind of deeper exploration of the text. But what Milbank is getting at is that um, there's something important about, uh, you know, engaging a sort of poetic sensibility uh, where where we're always sort of uh, playing with the text and exploring it in different terms and, um, you know, using different images to explore the text and even... Uh, you know, maybe different ways of uh, acting it out, maybe different ways of using theater or, or uh, art or music in, uh, you know, in exploring a text. Um, so I, I think that has to be, uh, you know, part of the church's um, sensibility going forward is just, uh, I remember in, in our seminary, we had quite a few poets here 
And I remember uh, a few years ago, one of our poets, Paul Hooker, um, he translated um, the Easter Vigil, you know, uh, translated the Easter Vigil into mm. a poem, a, a, a cycle of poems that we as the faculty and students, we sort of divided up the poetry and we rehearsed and we read that, that poetry um, in a way to sort of make the word strange, right? To try to say in a new way, say with new ideas, uh, what, what is uh, in the tradition, you know? And so I think that has to be part of our sensibility is, um, it, you know, I, I'm not arguing that we abandon uh, the text or that we abandon um, our sense of uh, the, sort of the historical rhythms of worship. Uh, but I do think there is a place for for playing with them, you know, for uh, for sort of turning things inside out, looking at them differently and even engaging them differently. Um, so anyway. I love that idea of like kind of play and delight and how they can find a home um, in worship or in the classroom. I'm wondering if any other example comes to mind that you found to be especially playful or delightful. I don't know about you, but when I was, um, you know, in the middle of the COVID, uh, you know, pandemic, you know, when we were all sort of quarantined to our homes and um, one of my, uh, one of my habits or pastimes was I found myself looking at YouTube videos, especially videos of flash mobs, right? And so I, I was not sure where you were going to go with that. So flash mobs, I just found them so fascinating. So, so you have in, in, invariably you have some context where it's an airport or, uh, or some sort of uh, European, um, you know, square or some public setting where people are sitting drinking coffee or, you know, maybe you see a businessman on his lunch break uh, pouring over papers or you see a mother sort of scolding her child or, or, or you know, whatever you see. Um, and, then, and then suddenly, uh, one by one, these strangers offer their gifts, you know, of music and song. And, you know, mm. as you look at the, as you, as you look at the crowd, you see people, uh, smiles breaking out. You see people tapping their toes. You see people singing along, people even beginning to dance along. And when the music ends, uh, as you look around, you can tell that, uh, that they don't want it to end. That, that they want this to continue, and you can you can sense that um, that there is, that something real has happened, that the gift of this music has somehow brightened the the day and, and lifted the mood of these people, and we and we don't know what concrete effects this might have on the businessman. Maybe maybe the business person goes back to their office and. Um, and, and, you know, and treats their coworkers better, or maybe the mother, um, you know, looks with, you know, with different eyes on their, their child with caring eyes. And so we don't know what, you know, the concrete effects are, but, but I had this dream that, that the church can be like that. I had this dream Mm. that, um, that the church 
enters the world, uh, you know, tearing up false treaties, uh, you know, that we make with these political parties, that we uh, that we somehow enter the world and say something new, say something that causes people to to dance and to sing and to not want the music to stop, and that and that causes them to want to emulate that to take that music with them into their lives. Um, so anyway, that's I know that's a that's a little um, that may be a little meta uh, <laughs> for the, for this. I've always wanted to find myself in the context where a flash mob happened. It's never happened to me yet, but I'm I'm hopeful you someday. You know, here here at the seminary, we have a wonderful um, music, uh, uh, you know, worship professor Eric Wall, who almost every chapel service is like that. You know, you you, you never know mm. where the music is going to come from. You never know who is going to be speaking the poetic words. Um, it, it, it just really is. Uh, and so my, my sensibilities have been informed by Eric in, in, in some sense. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think one, one challenge that I hear is to, to pay attention and to almost more assume a posture of delight and expectation in the world around us. Um, that's at least an encouragement that I'm kind of picking up from our conversation. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, um, in the book, I, I refer to Alexander Schmemann and his notion that worship, um, worship is another world. When we enter into worship, we're entering into a world that is already being redeemed. It's already sort of, uh, you know, taking on, uh, you know, the resemblance of the reign of God. And so we enter into this world of delight and joy and, and he also says that we, um, along with other patristics, we go to worship each day to try to say the name God better. It's, you know, hmm. we, one day we go and we think we have, uh, we think we have said the, the name well, only to take a step back and to realize, no, that we have not exhausted the ways of saying the name God. And that we need to go back tomorrow and try to say the name better, and that's what I see worship um, as sort of this ongoing attempt uh, to try to say the name better, to try to give new words, give new expression, um, new sounds, uh, new new visual experiences uh, to expose uh, the world to to this living God. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so at the beginning, you kind of walked us into a consideration of beauty through baseball. I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us out of this conversation by sharing with us about your golden retriever, who I was also surprised to encounter in the book. I've always had border collies all of my life, and border collies are very athletic. And you know, you throw the frisbee, and they'll they'll chase frisbees forever, and um, but in our old age, Melissa and I are in our 60s now, and so we we wanted a dog that we that was not quite as athletic, and so we we got a, a golden retriever, uh, Lulu, as a puppy, and sure enough, <laughs> Lulu is sort of like a like a big uh, sofa cushion, right? You know, she she just sort of she sort of um, you know uh, sets ensconces uh, herself on some fur- part of the furniture. 
and we would pass by her, you know, many times a day and pat her and give her treats and say nice words to her. And then uh, at night she comes and jumps on our bed and says our prayers with us. And, um, and then several times a day we take her on walks. And the morning walk especially, um, you know, I, I take her out and um, I saw I've, in the book, I've sort of imagined this walk as, uh, as, as a, you know, part of my uh, spiritual formation. And Lulu is my spiritual guide. So Lulu guides me around my neighborhood and she teaches me to see things that I would not have seen otherwise. She, you know, she, she teaches me to see frogs and egrets and, and birds and certain flowers that she likes or certain patches of grass that she likes to roll in, certain neighbors that like to, to feed her and give her treats. And she especially likes college students who pass through our neighborhood on the way to, to University of Texas. And so Lulu sort of um, every morning takes me on this, uh, this, this tour of her parish. And she is uh, day by day teaching me to see things. And, and in the book, my confession is that my heart is opening uh, ever so slightly because of Lulu. And, and you know, um, mm. I, I talk about her as a kind of emissary from, an, from an, a more benevolent kind of planet who, who has come to sort of make, uh, to heal my, heal my twisted heart and the hearts of those whom I love, and and that is that is her role in my life. She, um, in her beauty, I cannot um, I cannot help but but um, uh, I cannot help but see her through uh, the eyes of beauty, and I cannot help but name her in these creative ways. And so uh, so creativity is a part of what we're up to as well. It's not, we're not just about beauty, but we're about responding to beauty creatively. Yeah. David, it's, it's striking to me that you kind of started in a place of kind of seeing the world as a child with this sense of wonder and beauty. And then um, now being able to see that through creation or through others. Um, and that's, that seems so connected to me. You know, one of the things that we're all so keenly aware of is just how polarized we are in this culture today. We, li- we live in these camps where we have identified and frankly objectified each other as, you know, liberal, conservative, uh, theologically, politically, and we have, um, you know, and, and we, have, we have forgotten how to see each other as mysteries. We have forgotten how to see each other as guides, as spiritual guides. And so what, I, what I'm trying to reclaim here is this sense of depth that, we, that each of us, we, we, we should not be reduced um, to ideologies. We, I am more than my political uh, commitments. Uh, I, I, am, I am more than that, and you are more than that, and, and I need to learn uh, to linger with um, with you long enough to see the depths of uh, of what you offer um, offer to my spiritual growth and fulfillment.
You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. Our editorial and production team includes LaDonna Damon, Armand Banks, Madeline Paulhill, and Garrett Mistowski. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Even better, share an episode with a friend. The Distillery is a production of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Thanks for listening.